of all of the words used to describe the results, the work of Jesus intends to yield in the life of men. None is more powerful than the word free. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus would say to his followers, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. In Romans 8, 2, the Apostle Paul echoed this incredible idea when he wrote, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's true that liberty, freedom, is the result, the fundamental result, of God's amazing grace. As the famous preacher D.L. Moody once said, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are free. Because of Jesus and His work at Calvary, you, my friend, have been freed. Freed from the burden of the law, free from the burden of expectation, free from failure, freed from sin, free to simply enjoy God's favor. Grace yields freedom. And the results are incredible. And yet, it's sad. This word free is so rarely used by the world in describing Christians. Tragically, instead of free, liberty, legalistic, is how many people today perceive the followers of Christ. And it's a shame. Many view Christianity as being restrictive, a killjoy, limiting, as opposed to being freeing, amazing, and liberating. And that shouldn't be the case. Can anyone honestly read through the Gospels and look and with an honest gaze at the life and ministry of Jesus and reach such a conclusion? Jesus said that he came to give life and that more abundantly. In the first nine verses of Galatians 5, Paul, writing to the churches in Galatia, he addresses the very liberty and freedom that grace provides each of us. And he does this by contrasting our liberty and freedom with bondage. Specifically, the bondage yielded through religious legalism. He writes, and let's look at it, Galatians 5, beginning with verse 1. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well, Paul writes. So who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. We can Jesus. A little leaven, Paul writes, leavens the whole lump. In this section, an important section, of his letter to the Galatian churches, Paul expounds on what it means to be a child of freedom. The result of the gospel of grace. Now, for a little context, it's important you 
you understand that Paul, he, he's closed out the fourth chapter by making what is really a bold declaration. He says, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And then in verse 1 of Galatians 5, Paul applies that thought by saying, so stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And building upon the theology of grace, which is really what Paul's kind of manifesto, this letter to the Galatians, is all about, he transitions here by referencing not just any type of freedom, but rather something very specific. He says, look again, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And note, the use of the definite article here, the Liberty, it implies something that's distinct, unique, particular. A distinct liberty. A particular liberty. So we have to ask, well, what liberty is Paul referencing? And I think that there are three clues in our text to help us unpack what Paul is referencing, what he's writing about. The first clue, Paul is no doubt referring to a liberty that originates not in country or constitution or founding documents. He's referencing here a liberty that doesn't even uh, originate in you, but a liberty provided by Jesus. That's the first clue. He writes, again, the liberty by which Christ has made. Keep in mind, the freedom that Paul is referencing is something that resides in Jesus, and therefore a particular work that he initiated, that he accomplishes, that liberates us. The second clue. Paul, in addition to writing about a liberty provided by Jesus, he's also referencing a liberty that exists regardless of one's perspective. He says Christ has made us free. It's in the past tense. It's permanent. You see, Paul is describing a freedom that is sure and solid, a freedom that's not up for debate. Like every Christian has been set free, whether they realize it or not, through a work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now the third clue. Now the very implication of Paul's exhortation to stand fast in the liberty. It's clear that while this freedom does exist for every believer, there are forces actively seeking to snatch this liberty away. It's why, again, Paul cautions, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The implication of this statement implies that it is entirely possible. Again, Paul's not warning something that wasn't. He says it's possible, sometimes likely, inevitable, for Christians who have once been freed by grace to be tempted, to be allured, to revert back again to bondage. Again, it's why Paul invokes such powerful imagery through this exhortation that not just resist, but stand fast. In the Greek language, the, 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 the verbiage here, it's to keep one standing. <clears throat> we would say, grip, hold on to the liberty. With these three clues in mind, <clears throat> that Paul is describing a liberty provided by Jesus, a liberty that exists regardless of perspective, and one in which there are forces actively seeking to snatch it away, we understand that there are two things that Jesus has liberated us from. First, and this is amazing, but Jesus has freed you and, you and me 
from the resulting bondage of moral expectations. Where is the law? And we can summarize the law by, by kind of referencing all religious systems. The law, where is it binds us to a merit-based process that demands we do things to earn and maintain God's favor. It is grace alone, provided through Jesus alone, that frees us from that expectation by declaring us to be permanently right with God apart from our involvement. While the law enslaves a person to the pursuit of, of always trying to measure up to some standard, it is grace that removes these shackles, allowing you the opportunity to just sit back and enjoy a relationship Jesus has given you with God. So first, Jesus has freed us from the resulting bondage of moral expectations. But secondly, Jesus has freed us from the resulting bondage of what I call self-rule. You know, sadly, as Americans, it's so easy for our political context and traditional understanding of freedom to warp our comprehension of what Paul is actually referencing when he mentions liberty. As a matter of fact, it's kind of this misunderstanding that fosters in turn a lot of the, the legalism within the church. You know, for many, liberty, liberty is defined as the freedom to do what I want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. As Deus Thomas Jefferson famously wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet consider for a moment the, the, the fundamental flaw in this notion. Does the liberty to live my life however I want to live it in the pursuit of happiness, actually make me free? The, the truth is that it doesn't. Like, like, understand, no one reading this letter in the first century in Galatia, within the Roman world, would have seen or, or perceived liberty as life void of authority. Like, there was no such thing. Like, they rightly knew what, what we've so easily forgotten. Everyone has a master. As Bob Dylan's saying, everybody serves somebody. You know, in America, you might be free to pursue whatever it is that tickles your fancy and makes you happy. But that in and of itself isn't freedom. It's not liberty. You know, the Founding Fathers specifically sought limited government, not with the aim of there being no government, but in the pursuit of self-governance. Instead of there being a king ruling over every man, our founders wanted to create a system where each man was largely free to rule over himself. Jefferson, with that in mind, really should have written, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, the freedom to govern oneself, and pursue what makes them happy. That would have been more accurate. Sure, while living in America with a Constitution and a Bill of Rights, we are free from a tyrannical government that seeks to 
impose its will on our lives. At least that was kind of the idea, and at one point it did. But in the end, like the freedom to do whatever we want in the pursuit of whatever makes us happy doesn't yield liberty. Instead, it yields a servitude to those pursuits of happiness. Like, what many fail to understand, recognize, is that liberty, as Jefferson described, doesn't guarantee freedom of the masses when all it accomplishes is the enthronement of each man so that he can pursue his own happiness. You see, the only thing liberty in that context actually accomplishes is the enslavement of every man to the same pursuits. Here, here's, why, here's why this is the case. Here's why, again, our understandings of liberty are flawed. And this might rub people the wrong way, but it's true. Man, humanity, you and I, people, we're not conditioned to rule ourselves, but to be ruled. Fundamentally, we were created to be ruled. Now, back in Genesis, while we read Adam was given dominion over all of creation, keep in mind he wasn't given dominion over himself. You see, the way that God had structured things is that God would rule man. Again, that's why we're conditioned to be ruled. God would rule man, and then man was to rule creation. And yet, well, Satan's original lie in the garden was that every man could what? Be his own God, be his own ruler. Do you, do you remember what actually happened when Adam and Eve bought into the lie and ate the forbidden fruit? According to, to his commentary on that event in Romans 1.25, Paul says that it was in that moment that man, note, exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. Again, man being conditioned to be ruled. It's true that you do have complete control over who or what sits on the throne in your life. But be not mistaken, you can't sit there. Again, you can't be your own God. You've been conditioned to be ruled. And that's what makes liberty in our, our kind of American context so misleading. Though you've been given the freedom to self-govern, the, the irony is that you'll always advocate that throne to someone or something other than yourself. That's natural. It always happens. It's, it's why, really, the, the idea of true liberty is nothing more than a mirage. I mean, just look around at our culture. And aside from all the craziness with, with vaccine mandates and masks and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Aside from lockdowns and social distancing, beyond those things, if you look around at our culture, it, it's, it is true that people are generally free to do what they want. But would you really say that the majority of Americans are walking around in liberty? Or that people are, 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 are mired in some form of a bondage. You know, honestly, the majority of people living the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness don't find themselves to be any freer than they are happy. In actuality, 
many people in our culture are empty and miserable. Which is not a surprise. When you realize that whatever it is that you're pursuing to provide you happiness, in turn, you enthrone and bound yourself to. This is why pursuing happiness and money leads to what? Materialism. Or seeking fame leads to egotism, or sex, hedonism, or body, selfism, or charity, altruism, or vice, sensationalism. Not only are all these things in the end vain pursuits, but what do they do? They only bind you further and deeper into those pursuits. You're never free. In fact, those things end up being very wicked masters. Let, let, me, let me give you an example to kind of try to hammer home this point. If you need to to shed a few pounds for health reasons. That's one thing. But if your motivation for losing weight is rooted in deeper insecurities about the way that you look, thus, thus losing weight is about being happy and, and not healthy, what happens? You will find yourself enslaved to that pursuit of losing weight you will attend a church dedicated to that pursuit. It's called a gym. You'll uh, incorporate sacraments. They're called diets. Like, it's all a trap. Because even if you're able to achieve that number, that magic number, or you get the look that you were, you were hoping for so that you can feel happy, do you just stop at that point? No, no, no. You have to keep working harder and harder and harder for what? To just maintain it. It's not like you finally get to your number and you're like, oh my goodness, this is great. I can go back to the, living the life the way I wanted to. No. You have to work hard to get there and then you have to work even harder to stay there. It enslaves you. <laughs> this is why Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 17. He says, I hated life. I hated life. Because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. Understand the liberty described in Scripture isn't freedom from governance or even servitude, authority. Again, God has made all man, all men, to be ruled. Instead, when Paul writes about liberty or you, find, or you read about freedom, the freedom, the liberty that grace affords, what Paul is addressing is he's describing life not free from servitude, not free from authority, but he's describing life and using the terms liberty and freedom under the enthronement of a worthy king, a worthy authority. You see, the liberty that you've been given by Jesus through his grace is not the freedom to do whatever you want, which, again, only leads you back into the bondage of self-rule or the servitude of those pursuits. But it is instead the opportunity, liberty, the opportunity to finally live according to the way that God designed you to live. Again, God created the order. God ruled man, man ruled creation. God rebelled against his creator. And what happened? Well, Romans 1, he became servitude of what he was to rule because it rebelled against him. Liberty, freedom is the restoration of that hierarchy. 
It's God over man and man over creation. Man back under the rule of a creator. This means, and it tells us, that real liberty and lasting freedom is only found in a person's complete, total, absolute surrender to Jesus. This is why Paul, in writing to the Galatians, pleads with them and by extension you and I, stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In the end, Paul is arguing that because legalism heralds things for you to do or refrain from doing as the basis of earning and maintaining a favor with God, legalism, enthroning the, 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 the rule of self as opposed to the rule of Jesus, it yields, it fosters, it brings us back into bondage. Again, religion produces bondage. Jesus produces freedom, produces liberty. Paul builds on this thought by explaining why it is that legalism fundamentally runs counter to the freedom we find in grace. In verses 2 and 3 of what we read, he writes, I'll read it again. He says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Now, before we unpack these verses, it's, it's important just quickly to define and discuss for a moment circumcision. Circumcision, it's an interesting thing. It's, it, it is found in the law of Moses, very little. In fact, you only find a reference to circumcision which within certain protocols regarding women who have just given birth to children. Leviticus 12, verses 2 and 3. It's found, yes, in the law of Moses, but it's important when you're trying to unpack this idea to realize that the practice of circumcision predated the law by really a few hundred years. In fact, it was in Genesis 17 that God appeared to Abraham and said, This is my covenant between me and you and your descendants. Every male child among you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, as a sign of the covenant between me and you, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Understand, it, it, and this is what many people get so wrong, circumcision was not given as the, the sign of the law, but rather it was a physical reminder of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and his descendants, namely, that God was going to provide for them a Savior through his lineage. And it was because of Abraham's belief in this Savior that we're told in Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed, and it was that belief that was accounted to him for righteousness. It was that belief in a coming Savior that made him right with God. In Romans 4, verse 11, Paul would later write that Abraham, quote, received the sign of circumcision, again, 14 years after being declared righteous by God, as the seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So what Paul is saying is that this physical act, it didn't make Abraham righteous. He was righteous 14 years earlier when he placed his faith in the coming Savior. Instead, circumcision was a physical reminder of the basis of our salvation being in faith. Well, the Jews had come to see circumcision as an external act that brought with it God's acceptance 
an entry into the lineage of Abraham, which is one of the reasons why the Jewish believers wanted Gentile Christians to be circumcised. But the reality was that circumcision represented the exact opposite reality. As David Guzik remarked, he, he writes, circumcision is a cutting away of the flesh and an appropriate sign of the covenant for those who should put no trust in the flesh. See, circumcision did not represent the law of Moses, but was instead an act that physically represented one's spiritual faith and the coming promise. Faith in a coming Savior is illustrated in the lives of, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. Men of faith before the law ever came. You know, furthermore, it's, it's interesting to note that the procedure of circumcision was specific. God was specific when it was to occur. It's to happen on the eighth day following the birth of a male child. According to biblical numerology, the number eight, it represents what? A new beginning. New order, new creation. It can actually signify being born again. It's with this understanding that we begin to, to realize why Paul would now say to a group of uncircumcised Gentiles, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing because every man who becomes circumcised is a debtor to keep the whole law. Paul's point was that since the Savior had already come in the person of Jesus, partaking in this physical act, circumcision, that represented faith in a coming Savior, would now actually signify unbelief. A failure to see Jesus as the Savior who had come. This explains why uh, Paul then says that Christ will profit you nothing, or literally Christ won't be able to assist you. It's like, it's like Paul saying, who cares about faith in a coming Savior when the Savior's already come? And continuing his logic, Paul reasons, that if Jesus is rejected as the Savior, which, which again then makes everything he did of no practical effect, all the act of circumcision accomplishes is placing that person back under an old system, back under the righteous demands of the law, which was never designed to save but accentuate your need for a Savior. Paul adds in verse 4, he says, You have become estranged from Christ, or, or Christ is literally of no effect to you, you who attempt to be justified or to be made right by the law, you've fallen from grace. Now, the, the flow of, of Paul's argument, I know it might come across a bit complicated, but it is rather simple. He's saying that rejecting Christ as your Savior defaults your justification. And let me define justification. To be justified is for God to see you just as if I'd never sinned. It's, it's, it's the end result of the work of redemption. That when God sees you, you've been justified. He sees you sinless, pure, righteous. So rejecting Christ as your Savior defaults you, your justification, away from being this manifestation of a gift of God, a work of God, the grace of God, again demonstrated in Jesus' death, and it shifts it back Unto your efforts and your merit and your attempts to earn God's favor using law. And what's sad is instead of righteousness, such a development only yields in that person's life what? Not freedom, not liberty, but bondage. And using this descriptive phrase, you have fallen from grace. 
Paul is not here speaking of a moral failure, but is instead describing a person who's, who's made a decision to no longer place their trust in Jesus for their justification. Instead of freedom provided by grace, this person has made the decision to go back under the burden of the law, which in turn enslaves them in this pursuit, a wicked pursuit, to try to prove their worthiness to God. Paul then explains why this is such a tragedy and should be avoided. In verses 5 and 6, he says, For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Well, what is the hope of righteousness? In the Greek, the word hope, it's a little misleading. It would be better translated as expectation. So, so better pose, like, what is the definite article, the expectation of our righteousness? Is the expectation of our righteousness, the right standing with God, that we're all good with God? Is it heaven? Now, it's true that heaven is, is, is a result of it, but is it the expectation, heaven? No, it's not. Heaven is, is in actuality, the, the, the reward of our righteousness. Is it a relationship with Jesus? No. Christ is the reason for our righteousness. Is it justification? No. Justification is the mechanism behind our righteousness. Like, understand the expectation of a right position with God, provided through God's grace and not our merit. The great expectation of what grace should do in our lives is that it's that standing, that I'm all good, that yields in response righteous living. A righteous standing producing righteous living. Which obviously appears in line with everything that Paul says. This expectation is not something that we're to be pursuing. It's not something we're to be working for. It's not even something we're to be that focused upon. It's instead something the believer is to be patiently experiencing and waiting to see accomplished how, not by the flesh, Paul will write later on in the chapter, but through the Spirit. Paul says again, look, for in Christ Jesus neither, or better translated, and not circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. And again, this, this word avail, it means to be strong or to have power. In regards to manifest, the manifestation of righteous living, which is the hope of righteousness, Paul affirms that the power, the availing for the way that we live a righteous life, comes how? And you, your efforts, your energies? No, it's, it comes in Jesus. It's not what I do, circumcision, or fail to do, uncircumcision. But how does it happen? By faith, working, and this is the kicker, through love. Like, this is radical. For Paul is saying the power for righteous living manifests in your life by faith in Jesus, working through your love for Jesus, which then according to John, 1 John 4.19, is a reciprocation of his love for you. We love him because he first loved us. You see, love, by the very fact it is a verb, it's never content to remain static. It, it's always determined to be active. You see, what Paul is saying is that while grace frees me, you have been set free to do whatever you want. You're liberated. Grace also, in that freedom, in that love, in that liberty, 
it floods my heart with such a love for Jesus that I want to live in such a way that it would bring Him pleasure. You see, grace changes my heart and it transforms my motivation. And because of that, it naturally changes my behaviors. Again, true freedom is, is a service to Jesus. But it's not a service to Jesus out of obligation or compulsion or requirement. It is a service to Jesus out of freedom and love. Martin Luther wrote, Quote, this grace of God is a very great, strong, mighty, and active thing. It does not lie asleep in the soul. Grace hears, leads, drives, draws, changes, works all in man. And lets itself be distinctly felt and experienced. It is hidden, but its works are evident. This now explains what Paul says to kind of finish out his thought. Look again, verses 7 and 9. He says, he says, you ran well, but, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who has called you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, this is the phrase, you ran well. That's in the past tense. You know, when Paul had left these believers, they were doing fine, but something had happened to stop their progress. He, he, he asked, he, who hindered you? Or who cut you off? Who tripped you up from obeying the truth? You see, false teachers, Judaizers, had infiltrated these churches in Galatia, and they were teaching what Paul calls a persuasion. In other places, he calls it a perversion. It was a treacherous deception because it ran contrary to the freedom, the liberty, the grace, the person, the work of Jesus. Again, Him who calls you. And what was the persuasion? Again, we could do a whole Bible study on this, but it's legalism. It's anything that would depart or take you away from grace and grace alone, grace period. Grace and do these things, or grace but don't do these things, or grace so I can do anything, are all warping and distortions of just grace and grace alone. Amazingly, Paul is saying legalistic thinking was hindering their obedience because it was promoting, again, the enthronement of self over Jesus. Me earning something he can only give. My sacrifices above his. My offering instead of the one he made. Please realize, my friend, when your motivation for righteous living becomes anything other than it just being a natural reciprocation of your love for God, your spiritual life will get tripped up. It'll get stifled. Like legalism, things for you to do and refrain from doing, will rob a person of freedom. It robs you from the ability to just enjoy a relationship with God, and it enslaves you back to the bondage of moral expectations and self-rule. You know, the warning within this passage, and the underlying reason that Paul commands you and me to stand firm in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, is that, and I think we've got to be real, it doesn't take as much, it doesn't take much to knock us off course to entangle us again to a yoke of bondage. It doesn't take much for you to, to be hindered from obeying the truth. Paul says, and he uses kind of a, an illustration, he says, it's just a little leaven. That's all that's needed to leaven the whole lump. Like his point is that just a little corruption, a little warping in our thinking has an uncanny ability to corrupt everything. I could bring in, I mean, just an incredible batch of brownies. 
I mean, fill the room with an aroma. They would they'd be piping hot. They would look great. We'd even have a, a, a gallon of, of, of vanilla ice cream. I mean, you'd be salivating. I mean, they would look great. But if I were to tell you, like, hey, yeah, this is a home recipe. Something's been passed down from generation to generation within the Adams family. The only kind of, the only wrinkle is that uh, on accident, just a little bit of dog poop get mixed in with the batter. Uh, but don't worry. I mean, it's such an insignificant amount that, that you wouldn't taste it. You wouldn't even know it's there. I just feel like the, I owe you the obligation to, to at least fess up. No one would eat the brownies. Again, a little leaven corrupts the whole thing. You'd have to throw it all out. That's what Paul's warning. This legalism, this tendency of self and flesh to want to have a role, to play a part, it's something you have to be cautious of and guard against because if you let self in just a little, it'll tear the whole house down. You see, legalism must be resisted at all costs for it will rob you of liberty. It will return you to bondage. Legalism will, will, will make what Jesus did of no profit by placing you under the obligations of the law. Legalism will violate and limit the work of the Holy Spirit in your life by removing love as the primary driver for the way that you live your life. And how does legalism do this? Legalism is dangerous because it vacates Jesus from the proper role he wants to have in your life, your Savior. Now, since it's a fact of life that everyone serves someone, this is why grace yields freedom. You see, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus died to set you free from sin, the enslavement of sin. And he did this. He liberated you with no strings attached. Your freedom, your right standing with God, your justification, it's based, it's founded on a work that Jesus did for you and not on one that you attempted to do because you couldn't. If you could save yourself, then you wouldn't need salvation. See, Jesus' grace was demonstrated to you without expectation of a future obligation. In fact, your service isn't even required. And yet, here's the kicker. Because of this freedom, that it's a no-strings-attached proposition. That you can do something that you could never have done before. You can freely choose to serve Jesus out of love. You know, in light of grace, your service can be a free response to His love. As opposed to being a way for you to try to earn. His. Your service can flow from the favor that Jesus secured for you and not as a way for you to try to earn His favor. You don't have to serve to demonstrate that you are worthy. You don't have to serve to demonstrate how good you are. You are set free to serve as a natural response of just how much He's served you and how blessed you've been. While the law demands your service, it is God's grace that enables you to serve out of freedom. Everyone serves someone. It's the misconception of liberty. Liberty doesn't free you from servitude. But it does say that you have a right to make a decision. 
that you can make a choice of who you'll serve. You're going to serve someone, but you can choose who. And friend, there is no greater king than Jesus. There is no more loving master than Jesus. His grace is free for you. And He loves you. And He expects nothing in return. And yet, in the presence of such love, in the presence of such kindness, is there really anyone you'd rather choose to serve than Jesus? Jesus. 